We are on the cusp of a major social change. Do you feel it? Even if you don't, make no mistake, change is coming, and it is going to be unforgettable. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Hart, and here on Prime Spark, where we work with and on behalf of women over 55, I want to help you find that spark that will ignite your way forward, reflect your gifts to the world, and illuminate your path through this next stage of life. Through these podcast conversations, I hope to inspire you to see how you can make a significant contribution to some of the gnarly problems that are facing us right now. Join me, and together, let's discover our Prime Spark. Hi, and welcome to Prime Spark. I'm Sarah Hart, and I'm so happy you're here with us. Prime Spark is designed for women over 55 or close with a goal to help us all live our happiest, most fulfilling and productive lives now and in the future. The mission of Prime Spark is to change the way our society sees and treats older women. That's a big mission, which only means we all need to be involved and we get need to get going now. And today I have the pleasure of talking with Laura Davis, a woman whose work I greatly admire. Laura Davis is the author of The Burning Light of Two Stars, The Courage to Heal, and four other groundbreaking books. In addition to writing books that inspire, the work of Laura's heart is to teach. For more than 20 years, she's helped people find their voices, tell their stories, and hone their craft. Laura has been published in Publishers Weekly, Writer's Digest, Crime Reads, Brevity, The New York Times, and featured in the Los Angeles Review of Books, and has been an engaging guest on QWERTY, Right-Minded, The Only One in the Room, and dozens of other podcasts. She's been a featured speaker for the National Association of Memoir Writers and a popular craft teacher at the San Miguel Writers' Conference. You can learn about Laura's books and workshops, read the first five chapters of her memoir, and receive a free ebook, Writing Through Courage, a 30-day practice at www.lauradavis.net. Welcome, Laura. I'm so happy you're here with us today. I'm happy, too. I've been looking forward to this for a long time, Sarah. Oh, me too, Laura. Me too. So just to get started, Laura, do you experience getting older? And if so, what is that experience like for you? You bet I do. It's actually probably the number one topic on my mind right now. Um, And it's so interesting. I I actually, you know, I'm a writer, so I write about things that I'm trying to process or understand. And just the other day, I sat down early in the morning because now I get up early in the morning, right, because I'm getting older. And I I was writing about aging. And what I said was that I had this expectation that aging would mean, you know, that kind of I'd go along basically the way I've lived my life up until this point, which is as a pretty driven, workaholic, productive, creative, you know, generative person uh, with a certain pace and, and energy. Um and that I would just keep doing that until either something physically happened where I, you know, had some kind of 
you know, I've had cancer before and my cancer would come back or I'd have a heart attack or, you know, I'd fall or, or there'd be some, I'd get a diagnosis, something physical would happen that would force me to change or my mind would start to go because I had a, a grandmother who was senile and a mother who had dementia. So in my mind, aging was like one of these two cat parts of my life would fall apart and then I would, you know, change. And what I'm experiencing instead, I mean, I yes, I have some physical, you know, I'm, I'm experiencing my memory is not as good. And, um, you know, physically, I have different aches and pains, and I have to be more cautious in certain ways. So I'm experiencing changes on all those levels. But what I'm actually experiencing is a more psychic change. Like I don't want to do things I don't want to do. And and I can't drive myself the way I've driven myself before. And I'm, I find myself frustrated and angry at all the tasks on my list that I used to take in my stride to do. Now I feel burdened. And I, you know, I'm a self-employed entrepreneur and I find that everything I do in my business, in my work, you know, as a writing teacher and a workshop leader and an author, it depends on my personal energy and me showing up. And I just don't want to show up in the same way anymore. You know, I want to, I want to be out with my, my dog who just turned two years old, my pandemic puppy. I want to be walking in the woods. I want to be visiting a friend. I want to be playing cards. I need more space around things. And so my experience of aging is that the change is on a more spiritual, psychic level at this moment. And I I'm, I was not prepared for it. That is fascinating, Laura. I have, <laughs> I'm, no, I honestly, I have at this point between my podcast and a radio show I had, I have talked to probably over 200 women, over 50 or 55. And I haven't kept absolute track, but I'll bet you 95% say something like you've just said that physically, of course, da, 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 da. but other than that, I, I just want to do what I want to do. I don't care so much what people think. I feel freer in a lot of ways. Um, and so I think it's fascinating that the that the major changes many of us experience, so far as I can tell, aren't aren't very much talked about because we're all surprised by it. Right. 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 I mean, I, you know, I'm 66 and I, I think my experience of the 60s so far is a lot of saying no to things and a lot of um, I don't want to do things I don't want to do anymore. And I happen to be in a position of privilege where I can make those kind of choices or at least makes. I mean, I can't retire. I have to keep working, but I'm not, um, you know, I'm in a position where I can make choices. I can choose to do certain things and not other things. And I, I just um yeah, it's it's sort of like, no, I don't want to do this anymore. No, I don't want to do that anymore. No, I'm really not enjoying this anymore. <laughs> and so it's it's wanting to be more discerning. That's the word that keeps coming up to me is discernment. How, what is it? I, and I don't know what I want to be doing in the next five or 10 years. I mean, I don't even know if I have five or 10 years or more. I mean, I, I don't, since I've had cancer, I don't anticipate or take for granted that I'm going to just keep living. I know that life can change in a minute, but I I don't know what I want it to look like. I just know I want it to be different than the way I've lived the rest of my life. And and time is time is ticking. I I feel that sense of not pressure but preciousness. 
Yes. Life feels precious. Yes. I, think. I don't want to spend it. I don't want to waste my time doing things because I've always done them that way, you know, because I'm habitually habituated to them. Oh, that's fascinating. I think, I think that maybe what happens for many of us is exactly what you said, that we start seeing that I've lived longer than I will live. I don't know how much longer I'll live. But I've certainly lived longer than I will live in all probability. And <laughs> well, absolutely. Unless <laughs> I'm gonna be 140 years old. <laughs> you never know, you know, you never know. Um and and so it's precious. And so I don't want to do stuff I don't want to do. I don't want to take the precious time I have left and do a bunch of stuff that is boring or I don't like to do it or I don't see any reason to do it or let somebody else do it. I don't want to. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. The other thing is that I'm I'm someone who's always had this kind of like fountain of creativity inside of me. I've had a million ideas in my life and I'm I'm good at not just creating but manifesting. I, I can make things happen and that not everybody has that combination of manifesting and uh, following through. But I find that that fountain of generativity in me feels very quiet. And I, you know, I published a memoir a year ago that that took me ten years to write, um, called "The Burning Light of Two Stars." It was the story of the tumultuous relationship I had with my mother at the end of her life. And I'm not sure if what I'm experiencing now, in terms of this like dearth of new ideas, is just because I'm fallow from having produced something so big that took me so long, or if it's a permanent change. Like, this is just, in my aging, I just don't have that same generative energy. And I I really miss it. But I also know I can't force it. No, and given the way you've described yourself, I have no idea, of course, but I would (laughs) guess... That. Tell me, Sarah. I need. I need. I know. This is I what need I, your wise voice. This is what I would guess, just because it's intuitive and it feels like it. That it is the former. That you sort of emptied yourself yeah. with the memoir, and you can't force a filling back up. It will fill back up, but on its own time. Yeah, I, I had a writing coach that helped. Uh, guy named Joshua Townsend, who I never would have finished my book without because I just couldn't get the structure right. Uh, even though I've been teaching writing for 25 years, I I struggled with my own book. And he um, he said that the creative process is create, release, relax. And, you know, I'm very good at creating and I'm actually good at releasing. I don't have any problem putting something out into the world, whether it's like a workshop or retreat, a book. Um, I can let things go, but the relaxing is much more challenging. And that's what you're talking about. It's like that that fallow field. Right. And that fallow field has been given all sorts of names, depending upon who's writing about it, can be very scary for some people because is this it? Yeah. You know, what what what's now? What's next? I've never. Or who am I without that? Who am I without that? That's right. Right. Who am I without it? Yeah. So, Laura, talk about your memoir. Um, tell us uh, what, I guess, one of the questions I would ask is, what question were you trying to solve with that book? Yeah, I think I, what I teach my memoir students is that, you know, every memoir, or any a novel too, any books, that the protagonist, which in this case was me, um, has some 
deep question that they're trying to answer. It's not just a report about what happened in your life. And and the author, to really be engaged in the process, should feel like they're trying to understand their own history at a deeper level uh, with, with insight that they didn't have before, which is why it takes time, distance and time from the events you're writing about to write about them. Um, so in my case, um, I had a, a, a very intense relationship with my very dramatic, um, intense mother. We were at odds for much of my life. We spent many years deeply estranged. And then we struggled for 20 years to rebuild a relationship with each other, which was always quite volatile. And we lived 3,000 miles away from each other. Uh, She was in New Jersey where I'd grown up and I had basically fled to California in part to put 3,000 distance miles distance between us when I was a young woman and then I just stayed out here um, and I felt like the the kind of mediated relationship we were able to establish kind of in my middle adult years in part was successful because we were 3,000 miles away when she turned 80 or maybe she was 79 um, she called me and she announced that she was moving across the country to my town (laughs) for the rest of her life. And she was already showing some signs of dementia. I mean, the very, the beginning stages, but she just, she didn't ask me, she announced she's coming. And I had to deal with that. And I felt incredibly ambivalent. Um, I didn't say no, because I think part of me hoped that perhaps this opportunity to be with her at the end of her life might enable us to heal our relationship the rest of the way that, that I actually could maybe have the kind of relationship with her. I had always secretly longed for. And, and also that I wanted to show up as a daughter in a particular way, even the way though she had betrayed me repeatedly as a mother, she'd also done good things as a mother. And so part of me was dreading her coming and felt like it was going to, completely upset my entire life and and that I couldn't that I'd fail at being her caregiver um and part of me was longing to see if in this circumstance if I showed up for her that maybe something could change or heal between us in the final years of her life so she moved and uh, out to Calif- to my town in Santa Cruz California and and lived here for the the remainder of her life, which was about six and a half years. And this book really is tells the story from that phone call to the end of her life, uh, with a lot of looking back at the early stages of the relationship and why it was so volatile and you know dramatic. So the question I was asking was, can you caretake a parent who betrayed you in the past? You know, that was the, as in real life, that was the question I was facing. And my character in the memoir, who was not me, but based on me, was facing that question too. And um, I wanted to I wanted to present the two of us as completely human and completely flawed. You know, I didn't want to be the hero and have my mother be the villain, which is probably why it took me ten years to write the book because it took that long to be able to present, first of all, to show my own underbelly and my own flaws and also to create her as a completely three-dimensional uh dramatic compelling character and i think i succeeded in that and that's that's when i decided it was time to publish the book so so that's what i dealt with and i wanted as a caregiver to tell the real truth not the like sugar-coated truth but like really how hard and difficult 
rewarding, how complicated it was, this this very complex relationship, um, which, which ironically, uh, eight years after her death, I feel like I'm still in relationship with her. I mean, she's not here anymore. And in some ways, the fact that I don't have to deal with her more challenging characteristics in person makes it easier for me to process the relationship. But I feel in some ways um, very loving and open towards her at this point. And, and it's continued to be an active relationship. So that that's what I wanted to write about was this, this mother-daughter dynamic. Um, and also, you know, what the caregiving process really is like. Um, and and that it's possible to find resolution even if it's imperfect. You know, it's not like the fancy Hollywood ending where the violins are playing and everything is resolved, but that it was enough. And and that's what I want. That's the story I wanted to tell. I would think that that your story would be incredibly helpful to a lot of people. Have you gotten that kind of feedback on your book? Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. I've heard both from people who are in my position, the position of being the daughter, but I've also heard from a lot of older people who are in the position of approaching needing a caregiver or being in relationship with their daughters. It's usually the daughter, not the son, unfortunately. But um, So I've heard from people on both sides of that equation who have deeply resonated with this story. Um, and, and it's really struck a very strong emotional cord for them. And and for caregivers, I think, made them really reflect on a lot of their experience that they maybe didn't have time to process when they were going through it, you know, because it's so um, demanding to, to be a caregiver, particularly. I was in the sandwich generation, you know, I had, uh, when my mother was declining and I was taking care of her, I had two teenagers at home. So I was just, you know, totally squeezed, like I felt like I was in a vice I'm during sure. those years. When you heard from the um, the mothers on the on the side of the equation, what did you hear from them? Um, I heard about uh, what it was like to surrender control. Um, I heard about the challenges of giving up independence. Um, I heard about um, letting go of the person they had been before and um, what it was like to become more dependent on someone after having been independent for many, many decades. Um, and I heard a lot about their daughters, you know, just like from the daughters, I heard a lot about their mothers. And, and, and a lot of them maybe would reflect because maybe earlier in their life, they'd been in that role. So, I mean, this is generational, right? So, right? so no matter what age people were, they were often reflecting on their mothers, whether they were you know, 90 years old, 60 years old, or 30 years old. Fascinating. So, Laura, one of the things I noticed recently on something you put out on the internet was you, you had a, a prompt to write about libraries. Oh, yeah. What does a library mean to you? I think the the it's it's so interesting because I just right before this recording I taught my weekly writing class and I get I had my students writing about libraries. <laughs> uh, I had them write about tell me about something that happened in the library, and then I we all made lists of uh, books that had changed our lives. You know, not just books they liked, but books that 
really changed their lives in some significant way. And then everybody wrote a story about one of those books. So I think for me, um, libraries were, well, first of all, I fell in love with words in the library. I don't know that I'd be a writer if it wasn't for libraries and and the the huge handfuls of books I used to bring home as a little child. Um, I, I grew up in a very literate household. You know, I was read to every night and uh, there was the the books were everywhere. So, and and the library was like a, a very magical place um, to get information. And I remember looking at those, you know, those old card catalogs. Oh, I love you pull card out the drawer, and there's those little cards with the Dewey Decimal System. And you know, there were times I was able to um, get information and find out about things that I couldn't find out about any other way. So. It really was a a doorway, a, a a portal into all kinds of knowledge, including forbidden knowledge. And I, I mean, just this morning, I was listening to a podcast about all these challenges to books in the libraries and all these groups of um, parents, mothers who were organizing all over the country to fight books in school libraries. I mean, it's just so, I mean, it's so cyclical, but it's so sad and devastating to know that. Um, these people are gaining control. They're getting on the school boards, and they're they're limiting what kids can have access to, um, and and seeing books as dangerous. It's like if you don't want to read that book, don't pick it up. But right. for someone else, it might be the exact right book at the right moment. Yeah, I um, that I find that whole thing very distressing to me. Um, I, I don't. I I try to understand things, but that I, I have trouble understanding. Um, I agree with you. If you, don't, if you don't like the book, don't pick it up. You know, if you don't if you don't like what I'm doing, don't watch. You know, I I, I don't I don't I just I don't understand. <laughs> I just don't understand. Oh, Laura, you've done so much. What in your life um, are the three things you're proudest of? Um. I think the first would be that uh, I was an incest survivor. I was sexually abused by my grandfather, and that I, um, and I was so as a result, I was a very traumatized teenager and young adult, and and really very dysfunctional. And that I was able to heal from that. You know that I I I set myself on a healing course. I got tons of help, and that I was able to heal from those that devastation. And also that led to my first writing my first book, The Courage to Heal, which has helped, you know, probably millions of women and some men for more than three decades heal from sexual abuse. So the fact that I was able to take something that was traumatic for me and turn it into a resource for others, um, that that continues to be a living resource today, I feel really proud of that. Um, I feel really proud that I reconciled with my mother. I mean, I, I think both of us felt that uh, our relationship was impossible. We had every reason to give up on each other and to feel betrayed by each other. And yet both of us really persisted in wanting to connect with each other. And I feel really proud of that. And also that I, I took care of her at the end of her life. And it was very difficult for me. Uh, but that I, I, on a human level, I showed up for another person to that extent, I think makes me feel proud. Um, I think the other thing is that uh, my partner, Karen, and I have three kids who are uh, 25, 
29 and 44. And they're all uh, thriving adults, you know, so they're, they're in healthy relationships. They feel good about their lives. They all do work they like. And so I feel really proud of that. I feel like this next generation, you know, I was able to um, provide for them a kind of stable core for themselves that I didn't get as a child. So I think it's it's really improving things for the next generation. Uh, I feel really good about that. What, what what could be a better thing to do than that? I mean, <laughs> no, really, no. I mean, yeah. seriously, I mean, um, we haven't left the best world for people. So to to provide a, a sturdy background, I think, is important. You have your life has been sort of a journey of healing. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, I I, I remember uh, when I wrote The Courage to Heal with Ellen Bass, which was like 35 years ago, there was this one woman I interviewed that I'll never forget her. She said that she was, you know, always going to these workshops to improve herself and to fix herself. And she said she went down to Mexico on a vacation for like three or four months. And she said when she came back, her, her mailbox was full of flyers for all these self-improvement programs and seminars and groups. And she said... I took it all and I threw it in the trash and I just thought, you know what? I don't need to fix myself anymore. I'm good enough the way I am. So I I've, I took that to heart. And it's not, I mean, I, I'm someone who is really committed to growth. I think I will be committed to growth and self-reflection and, um, you know, like whatever it is. Like in my life, I've had to learn to apologize, which was so hard for me to ever admit I was wrong. I'm I'm always trying to grow in a lot of different fronts, but I feel I do feel like I am enough. You know what I've done is enough. I I have a little um, sticker on my right by my computer. It says, um, "I am enough. I have enough. I do enough." And for me, I need to look at that every single day um, because you know I I. However, I'm wired. I'm wired with like the doing gene. I got that from my mother, and I have to remember: I have enough. I do enough. I am enough. Two things, and I don't know which I want to talk about. One of them <laughs> is oh, um, that um, that fascinating. I have had a personal project since the mid '90s called "The Sign of Enough." Oh, tell me and, more about that. And the question that it was designed to answer was, how will I know when I have enough? I uh, lived in San Francisco in the mid-90s during that dot-com boom and watched guys in their early 20s, mostly guys in their early 20s, become overnight millionaires and and get every possible toy and trinket and big house and, and you can... And then when they got bored, they would turn around to want to start another company. And I remember where I was sitting in the marina in San Francisco in a coffee shop, reading the paper, saying probably out loud, oh, my gosh, you guys, how will you know when you have enough? And I just stopped and thought, well, how will any of us know when we have enough? So I've worked with that now for 20 some years. And it did occur to me sometime along the way that that is an important question. It remains an important question, given what we're doing to the environment and to our souls and everything else. But the question actually is a spiritual question about how will I know when I am enough? Because when I know, when I know I am enough, I will have enough. 
And until then, I don't know if I ever will, because I will be trying to fill something up that's empty. So have you gotten there yet? Some of the time. I don't know that it's I don't know that it's a specific destination we reach and then say, Phew! well, that's done. Right. You know. <laughs> well, what's I want to know. Now I want your advice. What's helped you get there? To to however far you've gotten in those 20 years. I think a little bit about what you were just saying. I think at some point I realized that uh, I had gone to every, and so many of us did this, every self-help <laughs> project, program, book, video that there was. And at some point, this was this is gonna this is arrogant. I got to I got to one of them and thought, I could teach this. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm just not doing this anymore. And I love the distinction you just made about continuing to grow without trying to fix yourself. Those are two very different things. Yeah, it is two very different things. Because I have no intention or desire to stop growing until I die. And when I die, maybe I'll stop and maybe I won't. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> send us back a message and let us know you go yeah, first <laughs> i'll let you know from, i'll let you know from the other side so what questions are you living with laura um i'm living with um will i get dementia like my mother i i feel like that's that question is oh i, I don't obsess on it i don't wake up worrying about it and i'm very aware it's a possibility you know, so that's one question. Um, another question is, I think it's, will I be okay when I'm old? And I think it's, will I be financially okay when I'm old? Um, you know, as a, a self-employed entrepreneurial person, I don't have a pension. I don't have, you know, I the choices I made, I'm having to deal with now when I look ahead. So I think that's a question I'm living with. And how can I best secure um, my independence as I get older? Um, yeah, and I think, how do I want to transform my current work so I can work less and work smarter? And be outside with your dog. And be outside with my dog. And um, right now I'm training. I I, um, I lead retreats in different parts of the world. And next um, September, I'm taking a group of writers hiking on the Camino de Santiago. So oh. I, I just um, last week met with a trainer whose specialty is preparing people, you know, I think a lot of people my age for these multi-day hikes or adventures where you really have to train. So I'm in training for that. So I have like, you know, stretching I have to do and strength exercises in a certain amount of miles a week. And that's what I want to be doing. That's that, you know. That that's what I want to be doing, and um, yeah, it's it's how can I how can I give up the habitual patterns that I just keep repeating, and really discover can I am I capable of discovering a different way to live that is more about being and less about doing? And I know that's like it's such a complete cliche. <laughs> But the reality is, is I've just been driven to do my whole life. And I I don't want to spend the, I've done enough. I really do believe I've done enough, you know, and I have to keep 
producing things or doing things. And, and I actually like working, but I just don't want it to drive me the way it has in the past. And the question is, can I free myself and discover a new way to be? And for me, when you say that, I would have to add, can I discover it and will I do it? Yeah. Because I don't, always trust myself to do what I've discovered is a better way. It's yes. just, it's um, it's sometimes scary to think of stopping doing things the way, or I don't know. I just, I don't always, I don't always take the steps that would be best in my best interest, I think, even if I see it and I'm, and I really would like to change that. Well, I I just want to say one other question, because those were all questions about me. I think the other question I have is, will our democracy survive in the United States? And and what world is being left to my grandchildren? Um, I think that's a huge, I mean, I feel like that's a giant preoccupation for me of something I really can't do much about. But it's it's a question that I live with that's some way completely supersedes my own concerns about myself. Right. I agree, and I think that's a very big question, and for which we have no answers right now, but we can just keep working. Um, now, I know that in addition to going um, to taking your long, 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 long walk, you're also <laughs> planning a retreat for women in May. Yes, I'm. I last year, I this was a trip that I was planning before the pandemic. It got canceled in 2020. And last spring, I was able to take a group of, I think there were 16 of us, to a a beautiful, gorgeous villa in Tuscany. And the the trip combined writing, um, being in this incredible estate, learning about wines and olive oil production, going on outings. We had a um, yoga teacher doing morning yoga for those who wanted it. And so it was a combination of relaxation, incredibly decadent, rich, and wonderful Italian food, you know, eating outdoors um, under the, under the moonlight. Um, and then, a, a, you know, a couple of hours a day for of daily writing for those who want to. And, and people came who considered themselves writers or didn't, but they were open to using writing as a tool to help bond us as a group and for self-exploration. So that trip was so fantastic. I'm doing it again um, in the middle of May. Um, this coming year, um, and there's still space on the trip. I would I would love to have anyone listening check it out. Um, you could learn about it at lauradavis.net forward slash Tuscany. That's lauradavis.net forward slash Tuscany. And it's going to be really um, an incredible trip once again. It sounds luscious. It just sounds... Yeah, luscious is a really good word for Whoa. it. <laughs> So I know, I know I have a sense of some of the things you're thinking about, about how you hope the next years turn out. But do you have dreams that you haven't realized yet? Well, you know, I, I always I have wanted to hike the Camino de Santiago. So that is a dream I hope I will be able to fulfill next September. Um, you know, if I don't get injured or something, you know, something doesn't happen. There's not a new pandemic that closes the border. So that's something I've wanted to do, to do something that challenge, physically challenging. Um, I, I can't really think of anything else, actually. I, I've really done a lot in my life, so I, I don't 
if I knew what the dream was that I hadn't yet fulfilled, I'd probably be working towards it. Right. <laughs> Cause that's just the way I am. But I, I feel like I, I have um, like that fallow place of not knowing and I have yes. to just become comfortable not knowing and allowing myself to live in uncertainty, knowing that there's a deep underground change going on and not knowing how or when it will manifest. And that you're doing certainly one and probably those two things next year that may be helpful in, in figuring all that out. It may I would think the long walk <laughs> would be a wonderful, wonderful time. I, I hope that's true. I mean, because I'm leading the trip, it's different. You know, when you're the leader, you're not just having the experience, you're facilitating. So I'll be walking, but I'm also going to be taking care of everyone, one right. of the people. So it's not, it. I can't really use it. It's not really a spiritual journey for me. I'm facilitating that for others. So I hope that I have some of those experiences. I hope, but you I'm, do too. having having led a lot of trips, I know the responsibility of making sure people are safe and comfortable, and that the group dynamics are going well, and all the logistics and all the little emergencies that happen. That's what I'll be dealing with, <laughs> along with taking care of yourself. Yes, and taking care of myself. Yeah, and training now so that I I'm not going to be injured while I'm doing it. Yeah, good. So, is there anything else you're doing now that you would like to talk about? Uh, just, you know, if anyone listening today um, wants to write as a as a tool for either healing or self-exploration or because they want to leave a legacy of family stories, um, I do teach weekly writing classes that meet online so people could come from anywhere in the world, really. Um, and and I will be taking, you know, I, I take new students on a cyclical basis. So if anyone wants um, wants that or wants to work on their craft as a writer, either for self-expression or because they're working on a project, um, they should check me out at lauradavis.net. Wonderful. Well, that's our time today. Thank you so much, everybody, for being with us. You can find out more about Prime Spark Podcast on every popular outlet. You can find out more about Prime Spark at www.primesparkwomen.com. Thank you so much to my guest, Laura Davis. That was such fun. And don't forget, you can find her at lauradavis.net. So thank you, Laura. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for being with us. Take care, spread tolerance and love. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to stay updated, you can head over to my website, primesparkwomen.com, and get my free spark guide, Seven Questions to Ignite Your Spark, to help you discover your own spark. See you in the next episode.